Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and the rest of the world. And you know what I'm going to say next? As ever, we have got a lot to cram in in our time together this week. Some brilliant questions on a range of issues, actually, not just the Tory leadership contest, a a lot of other stuff as well. And I will be making, if it's all right with you, a couple of notices, assembly notices. Then I'm going to be reflecting on the lessons from the rise of Liz Truss in relation to Keir Starmer. It will be a natural segue. You'll see. You'll see. Remember last week, some of you were almost screaming for a Keir Starmer special kind of thing. It's sort of here, but it's linked to the rise of uh, Liz Truss. Uh, And then I say we'll return to your brilliant questions. So just a couple of notices, a very quick reminder. I'm at the Edinburgh Festival live every day from Monday, August the 15th. And it's at 11 o'clock in the morning. It will be different every day in various ways. But the kind of essence of it will be making sense, delving deep, going back to the last time I was there. Uh, which was 2019, before the pandemic. That innocent summer of a hung parliament as MPs plotted to work out what to do with Brexit. They were still partially in control. What a world away. Anyway, uh, more about that as we get closer to it. And Patreon subscribers, thank you very much again for doing so. Uh, Your bonus podcast, looking at the relationship between David Cameron and Steve Hilton. Much light is shone on all that we're living through now via that strange relationship. Uh, That will be coming your way this week, uh, and it will detour briefly because it is illuminating also uh, the relationship between Theresa May and Nick Timothy, her chosen special advisor, along with Fiona Hill. Uh, And that will be the last of the specials on the relationship between prime ministers and special advisors through Huge demand. I'm going to reflect on a couple more general elections after that and then another series. Uh, Some of you have emailed with other ideas for series for bonus podcasts. So that's on the Patreon wing of this podcast uh, with loads of other bonuses as well. And the links for the Edinburgh Festival and Patreon will be with the blurb on the show. But at Edinburgh, you can write a lovely theatre. You can sit back, cup of coffee, early glass of wine, start your day at the festival with rock and roll politics. Now, to return to the current dramas. I had an interesting conversation with someone who I regard as one of the more perceptive members of the shadow cabinet the other day. They said to me that they realised Liz Truss was probably going to win the leadership contest when she heard, when he heard, it was, it's not a she necessarily, it could be a he, heard an interview with Liz Truss on the Today programme, which I heard as well, perhaps some of you did. She presented herself as the changemaker. She, in effect, condemned the last 20 years of sort of economic policymaking, the consensus around the Osborne era, the late Gordon Brown era after the financial crash, where he too was under uh, pressure to respond to Osborne economics, and then going on right up to the present day with Rishi Sunak, implied that it had not, no, she didn't imply, she said explicitly that it hadn't generated the economic growth required and that there was a time to challenge that treasury orthodoxy. And this Shadow Cabinet member said two things. One, that was the kind of message that would resonate in this time of turmoil 
and that it would present challenges to Keir Starmer too. That person also rightly observed her prescription for this analysis, unfunded tax cuts, is wholly wrong. But the analysis in which you portray yourself as the agent of change uh, after a period of stagnant or near stagnant economic growth is the one where you get real potency in the current era. And poor old Sunak is there, you know, with his uh, portrait of Nigel Lawson in his treasury office, but consulting to and admiring the likes of George Osborne from the 2010 era and using very precisely and I assume consciously the arguments that Osborne used uh, when he became a chancellor and indeed before he became chancellor in and around the 2010 election where he said uh, it is our responsibility to pay back the deficit and the debt now and not leave it for our children and their children to do so. I've heard Sunak say that several times in interviews. Uh, but that echo from the failed economic policies of George Osborne is not resonating. Although Sunak is uh, the more persuasive interviewee and the slicker interviewee and more in command of detail than Liz Truss, this kind of reinforcement of the economic orthodoxies of recent years just is not working so far. And I think that's interesting. Now, of course, as I said last week, this is all kind of topsy-turvy. Uh, Liz Truss is the longest-serving cabinet member, yet she is portraying herself as the agent of change. Sunak has left the cabinet, resigned, and uh, he is the one who is, appears to be the continuity candidate. Uh, and as he said on a Today programme interview this Monday, there are other twists too. He was the long-term Brexit supporter, blasting through Treasury orthodoxy, which was passionately Remain. Liz Truss was the Remainer uh, dancing with the Treasury. There are many twists and turns, but there is no doubt that Truss, in disowning or distancing herself from economic orthodoxies uh, embraced by uh, you know, David Cameron, Nick Clegg, George Osborne, Tony Blair and others over recent years – has cleverly positioned herself as the disruptor, as the figure reflecting that things need to change uh, to get Britain out of this terrible phase of low economic growth, if there is any economic growth at all. And in that, I think there are lessons for Keir Starmer. In order to win in current times, post the financial crash, post the pandemic, all the post-Brexit, all the kind of wild things that have been happening uh, within the UK and to the UK, he has to be seen as a change maker. It's the change makers that win. Those who claim to sit on the centre ground, though often hailing or espousing various forms of change, just do not resonate in the current turmoil. Change UK, the Liberal Democrats at the last election, Tony Blair's conference recently uh, in which he explored ideas and policies on the centre ground didn't really kind of make great waves. Trust, say, wholly wrongly, 
But as a changemaker, the right position, claiming all these tax cuts and so on, she makes hay. And I think although Truss is pitching to the Tory party membership at the moment, she is part of a pattern. Johnson himself, uh, a change maker. That 2017 general election airbrushed out of history. Uh, but both Labour under Corbyn and the Tories under May, and the Tories under May proposing a significant leap from the sort of uh, Cameron, Osborne, Thatcherism, both those parties got the biggest vote they had secured for many years in that 2017 election. Change makers win. And that means the kind of – I know I'm repeating myself with this, but I'm just going to say it one more time and then I won't say it ever again for a week or two. The lessons from Labour's win in 1997 are extremely narrow. Similarly, the fear triggered by the findings of focus groups are also uh, can be quite dangerous. Because if you are a change maker and you test things with focus groups, they can quickly come back and say, oh, no, don't like that, don't like that, don't like that. And suddenly you cease to have the space to be a change maker because you are paralyzed by the fear triggered by focus groups who, um, uh, well, that is their role. Someone was telling me the other day uh, that they were part of Jack Straw's team, I think in the Home Office during Labour's uh, first term. And they had an away day somewhere. And Philip Gould, who was then the focus group, group guru for Labour, uh, came along, gave a presentation. And Jack Straw said, get ready to be really depressed with getting a focus group presentation. And sure enough, it was dire. And they all went away depressed. At the time, Labour were 20 points ahead in the opinion polls. William Hague's leadership was in crisis. So focus groups do have a role to give people a sense of what some people are thinking under certain circumstances, but they should not determine policymaking or positioning uh, in a way that stifles any sense of being a change maker. Now, let me uh, move on to some specifics with Keir Starmer. First of all, a general observation. Leading the Labour Party in opposition is a nightmare. And having been slaughtered in 2019, the nightmare deepens because it is a big, big mountain to climb. Though Keir Starmer has advantages that uh, other predecessors have not had, uh, such as the turmoil within the governing party, the ideological confusion within the governing party, the fact that the tides appear to be moving, the sea change appears to be moving leftwards, uh, with the state becoming more central in people's thinkings, even including Rishi Sunak, Sunak with his uh, £20 billion emergency rescue package in the late spring, with, I can tell you, more to come, whichever Tory wins this leadership contest. So there are advantages, but it is tough, tough, tough. And the strike, uh, the rail strike and the internal problems that has caused Labour is an illustration of how tough it is. In my view, Keir Starmer is absolutely right to say his uh, front bench team shouldn't go on the picket line for this reason, that if you seek to be a governing party, uh, of course you say get back into the negotiating room and negotiate a deal. 
and uh, therefore uh, as one of the agents as a potentially governing party to be doing that and saying that, you cannot come out unequivocally on one side in the way that those on the picket line clearly are. And also you've got to take into account that people use the train services and all the rest of it and they too are part of the equation. And so also is the issue of, okay, if the uh, pay rise is accepted as uh, t- to the point where the unions are willing to accept and stop striking, how do you pay for it? Do you put train fares up? Um, they're already the highest in the Western world virtually or does the government pay for it or, or what? And so it's a bigger question. And so I think Starmer is right. I don't think he necessarily should have um, uh, sacked the guy he sacked uh, last week who um, uh, who went onto the picket line and spoke out uh, in favour of MPs doing that. The reason being is that people just noticed the sacking and the, the division and the turmoil. Um, they, they don't focus much on on the issue and people in his office who go out briefing this shows how strong Keir is and he's taking on the left and all the rest of it the only effect of that is to reinforce the sense Labour isn't fit for government because they are still in turmoil that applies by the way to the suspension of uh, Jeremy Corbyn from the PLP and all the other stuff that uh, and and you know the battles they had at the party conference last year all that comes across is a divided party. But he's right on the essence of the argument. It's much more rounded, the issue of what you do. But here is the problem when you opt for a kind of technocratic caution, uh, which is that you cannot frame any bigger arguments about what you would do different to the government. So this issue of ownership is crucial here. Uh, last week, I, I don't know whether it was planned or accidental, Rachel Reeves gave an interview, uh, which incidentally, it's kind of not new. I've heard Starmer say similar before, that um, the commitments to take various sectors back into public ownership were being scrapped. It didn't fit within the fiscal rules. And then immediately, the uh, trans- Shadow Transport Secretary tweeted, but we are committed to uh, putting the railways back into public ownership. And then Keir Starmer came on the Today programme. He was just about to talk about this, but then his line went dead in a sort of weird metaphor. Now, there needs to be clarity about this, and it's in uh, Keir Starmer's self-interest to make clarity around this. One of the reasons there is uh, these terribly disruptive strikes is the costly, inefficient fracturing of the railway sector. So last week I heard Mick Lynch say very clearly that they were close to or actually had reached a deal with Network Rail but had failed to reach a deal with the train operating companies. And meanwhile, we have the government in the background as well. Now, I did a podcast about this. Do listen back if you missed it, about the fracturing of the railways and why that made a resolution of any dispute about pay and working conditions and working patterns so difficult is so many agencies are involved. And therefore, uh, the ownership is a fundamental issue and part of the problem and also, by implication, part of a solution. But you then do have to put the case. 
for uh, a form of public ownership. Now, I say a form of public ownership because, you know, Rachel Reeves is right to spend billions and billions doing an immediate transfer of all those companies and industries that have been sold off to the private sector on the cheap, as Harold Macmillan put it, selling off the family silver when he made an intervention in the early privatizations. Uh, To buy it all back is ridiculously expensive. And that's just handing over money for an administrative transfer, however desirable. But with the train companies, what has happened and what could continue to happen is the government um, puts in bids when the contract comes up. And they do so in the context of a modern vision for the railways Um, and citing examples from abroad, like when Ken Livingston was mayor of London in his uh, very successful first term. Uh, You bring in to sort out the London Underground, he brought in the best people from New York who had sorted the New York subway out and all the rest of it. Do it again here and it will save money. But that is a involves a values-based set of arguments and then a policy-based set of arguments. And then when you say, look, of course they should go back into the negotiating room and sort this out, but we would not be in a position where all these different agencies are involved. We want to bring the railways back together again under public ownership, not like the old models, but some modern alternative based on the best models from around the world, because no one incidentally has followed from around the world the British model of fractured agencies in charge on about 25 different levels. But all Kisan will say on this is, um, well, on on public ownership, I'm pragmatic. Well, what does that mean? Uh, You know, it's that back to the Tony Blair thing. You know, what matters is what works, right? But that is a con. Because what works is the essence of the whole political debate. To take economics, Margaret Thatcher in the 80s claimed that her forms of monetarism worked. Many people disagreed. But she would say, well, it works. And someone at Labour would say, no, it doesn't. And then you have a debate. So you can't just say, look, you know, what works is what matters. You know, it's like this phrase, the right thing to do. One of Tony Blair's, ah, it's the right thing to do, right? Well, in his view, something might be the right thing to do. But you have to have a wider debate based on ideas and values. And that, I think, gives Keir Starmer space to stick to his position that an incoming Labour government is not going to unequivocally take one side in this, but does have a vision for a modern transport system, which is integrated and where these things can be resolved much more speedily and based on international comparisons. It's so parochial. What do they pay, you know, the, the signal signalers in France, Germany, Italy, uh, train drivers? What do they – I know the train drivers weren't involved in the initial dispute, but what, what do they get paid? And – How do they manage their system? Certainly not like ours. And that then gives Kistama the space to go for the government. Uh, Just by saying, oh, I'm pragmatic, and that's the answer. 
So are you saying that the energy market is a triumph and that works? And if it doesn't work, why doesn't it work? And then you can kind of do something the opposition should do, which is expose the weaknesses of government thinking and planning and implementation. The energy sector is a disaster. Think what has happened. First of all, it was dominated by huge near monopoly companies. So in order to widen the market, loads of smaller companies came in to create competition. But all they do, these companies, is gamble on the price of gas. And when the price of energy soars, they are in danger, as we've seen recently, of going bust. But if they go bust, what happens? The energy market returns to a couple of dominant uh, near private monopolies um, in running, in effect, the market, but also gambling on the price and calculating how much they can get away with and all the rest of it. It doesn't work. It's a failed market. Now, surely you uh, can attack on that basis. And I know why uh, Keir Starmer's wary of doing it. He's, he, he would have been told or decided that will make us look as if we're going back to the 1970s. Um, uh, even Gordon Brown, who was at times more daring than Tony Blair, uh, was terrified of bringing things like Northern Rock back into public ownership when Northern Rock was on the edge of collapse because of the fear of headlines about back to the 1970s and so on, even though The Economist, the Financial Times, Vince Cable for the Lib Dems were screaming for him to do exactly that. And um, so, again, it's that sort of paralyzing fear that prevents him from making a wider argument. And that is the case with Brexit as well. Again, I think at the moment they have gone as far as they can uh, with their propositions very limited and narrow to move a bit closer to the European Union compared with where we are at the moment, but ruling out the single market and customs union membership. Now, I think a sort of Harold Wilson Wiley figure might just have found a form of words uh, which left the door open for membership to those things. Because by the way, all this focus on economic growth, there won't be much uh, while we are blocked from our biggest market on the doorstep. Uh, Not blocked, but you know what I mean, endless barriers. The Dover queues are a metaphor for the whole nightmare now of trade with this huge single market on our doorstep. But to give him more space, Keir Starmer, this is what he should do. Day in, day out, focus on the catastrophe of the Johnson-Lord Frosty Frost negotiation. That Brexit was not voted for by anyone in the 2016 referendum. And frame it as saying you've let down the Brexiteers. Now, again, I'm told that in his office, they all go around saying there's no buyer's remorse on Brexit. A, the polls suggest that's not the case. And B, people will, in the end, make connections, but sometimes they need to be guided towards it. And a leader of the opposition, albeit it's very difficult with the Tory, the might of the Tory newspapers, and if List Trust wins, that might will be turned on Keir Starmer because the male are very pro-trust, they were less keen on Sunak, etc., etc. But you've got to you've got to expose the fact that two people negotiated this disaster and that there are other options 
without revisiting the whole Brexit debate. But if you are scared to do anything because the focus groups say, oh, that they think you're a Remainer from Islington. You know, he doesn't live in Islington. Boris Johnson lived in Islington. You've just got to create the space by framing arguments. It's all you've got in opposition. But Liz Truss has shown, and look, by the way, at how the media have warmed to her. It's not just those kind of members uh, that to be a change maker is where where it's at in the UK at the moment. Um, and I think it's going to be tough. And you see, that you can see it immediately. Trust is going to make these unfunded tax cuts right away, she said from day one. Is Labour going to oppose them? I mean, Labour have condemned the tax rises, trying to copy new Labour in the build up to 97, when um, uh, they position themselves as the... Uh, a main opponent, you know, Gordon Ray, 27 Tory tax rises. Uh, Clinton um, did the same in the US during presidential elections, uh, his first one when he was the uh, the one, no, he wasn't an incumbent. Um, and so what are they going to do? And unless you start framing the the arguments about the reasons why things have gone so badly wrong, and then what you would do to remedy them, uh, including issues such as ownership. Ownership shouldn't be a taboo issue for Labour. Uh, you know, the, 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 the Tories are obsessed with ownership. Uh, Privatisation is one of the things that is hailed as the defining triumph of Thatcherism and all that uh, has followed. And yet these markets are a complete basket case and no one has followed them anywhere in the world in quite the same way. Space to launch an attack, but you've got to say what you would do. Um, but anyway, it is, you know, it is a very, very tough job. By the way, the other thing he is being tormented with at the moment is just nonsense. But I think it is linked to the caution of his uh, or his office's approach, you know, so he's always been condemned now for being boring. And in every interview, he's asked this ridiculous question, Keir Starmer, are you boring? As if you say, yeah, yeah, I actually, I send myself to sleep with boredom. Um, you know, it's, it, it, it's crazy. He's, he's actually very interesting, um, you know, both in terms of career, um, getting to the top of the law, some of the things he did as a lawyer, as he mentioned, and it's true, you know, a lot of lawyers are just obsessed with making money. He did a lot of free work for the people like striking miners and things like that. He, he was obviously a really principled lawyer who then left everything to join a, a Labour Party, which as ever was going through one of its more dysfunctional phases. That's I know it's a contradiction as ever going through one of its, um, well, it's nearly always going through a dysfunctional phase. Uh, but he became a Labour MP and um, has risen up there. And so he's, a, you know, he's apparently a very good musician. In fact, Kathy Newman on Channel 4, when she said, if you're not boring, give me one example. He said, I learned the piano with Fatboy Slim. I think he said, you know, something to do with Fatboy Slim. Um, you know, so... All of that is nonsense. Obviously, he's in a really non-boring position, seeking to be prime minister uh, and forming a Labour government um, after endless terms of a Conservative government and now facing another 
Tory prime minister. So the boredom thing doesn't work. But I think the fact that it continues to be used as a weapon against him really is because the policy agenda is being formed in such a cautious way. And I think the assumption is they're following new Labour from 94 to 97. But in many ways, they're not um, because, you know, by 1994, Blair had inherited policies, quite a few of which were fairly daring. Um, He was very cautious, but they were quite daring. Nor did he attack um, the left, in inverted commas. Um, I mean, he followed a policy agenda that quite a lot, I assume, of the left, I can't, would have been not thrilled with, but they didn't kick up a fuss. He didn't go for personalities. He did once with Ken Livingston when Livingston wanted to be the Labour candidate for mayor and they disowned him and he stood as an independent and won. And Blair ended up apologising at the party conference for getting that wrong. Um, You know, I don't think he would have suspended Jeremy Corbyn in the way that uh, Keir Starmer has, just on strategic grounds. Um, You know, if you look at what uh, Keir has done in terms of that, he he, he sacked Rebecca Long-Bailey, he's he's disowned uh, Corbyn. It's the equivalent of Corbyn uh, suspending uh, or expelling Blair from the Labour Party after, uh, because of Iraq, say. You know, it, it, it is so disruptive. And again, it just creates an impression of a party in turmoil. Um, But I think he has the uh, depth and range to rise to these uh, challenges. Um, But I think, you know, this summer and autumn and spring of next year are the defining phases as to whether I'm right about that. Um, Okay, God, I've been going on for way too long. Um, I think it is time for your questions. First question is uh, from Mary Smith from uh, Lincoln. Hi, Steve. Regarding the current leadership debates, given that Truss and Sunak are attempting to win over Tory party members, I'm intrigued at the almost complete lack of any serious discussion about either the NHS or social funding. We're led to believe that the average age of party members is over 60. I'm in my mid-60s. I don't vote Tory, but I have an elderly mum paying exorbitantly for her poor quality residential care and a partner with serious health issues unable to get the treatment he needs. Surely these are the kinds of issues that are likely to be a priority to the elderly Tory party member, more so than tax cuts. Um, yeah, oh, oh Mary said, love your podcast and listen during my early morning walks in the Lincolnshire countryside. What a great romantic image, uh, Mary, of you walking along in the countryside uh, early. I hope it's not too early in the morning, but, you know, uh, some people like that. Um um, to the point, I, I think this is one of the reasons why, I, you know, I, I focus on this idea of trust projecting herself as a change maker, and that's effective. But this election is a fantasy election. And you highlight two of the areas where there is this massive demand that will have to be addressed for good social care, not just social care, but good social care, and the backlog in the NHS. And all we hear about are tax cuts. Um, Now, Rishi Sunak, who's changed course this week, 
says, oh, it's all possible, more spending for the NHS, plus tax cuts, plus growth. Um, uh, but he, as I say, now has opted for fantasy economics. Um, they haven't explained or prioritised these things. But where I think, Mary, you are probably wrong is that even though the Tory membership is pretty elderly on the whole, uh, surveys of members suggest that tax cuts is their top priority. But I don't think that is representative of the country. Every time you go out now, this country is creaking, trains not running, huge traffic jams. Uh, the NHS backlogs you hear of people waiting preposterous, dangerous times for appointments. Uh, the old thing that happened in the 1990s of people being stuck on stretchers for long periods of time. This is surely what needs sorting. Um, but as I say, we're in a fantasy world. The fantasy world uh, ends in the autumn um, with the energy price rises, but also with uh, the sense of a country that is becoming increasingly dysfunctional. It's to do with, uh, yes, public spending, the way public services are delivered, and it's also to do with the consequences of Brexit. Thank you, Mary. Uh, Andrew O'Toole writes, I listen to your podcast every week. Oh, thank you very much. I have a keen interest in British politics and often wonder, uh, oh, yeah, this is from Ireland, I think, isn't it, uh, Andrew, Dublin, uh, why uh, the UK and Ireland differ so much on the EU. I do know that as someone who grew up in the 80s, the economy here in Ireland was utterly transformed by joining the EU single market. I don't believe Irish people would ever vote to leave the EU if there was a referendum. Uh, yeah. Oh, by the way, I've come to that, Andrew, but Andrew mentioned something interesting, which I didn't know. Do you remember a few weeks ago, we were having a debate about how to fund the NHS? And uh, I kind of came out in favour of co-payments to do it, that people should make a contribution in some form uh, if they can afford to do so when they have a treatment or see a GP, just because I don't believe in this country there will be the will to raise the taxes to pay for the demand. Anyway, Andrew writes, I know you mentioned a few times about some sort of contribution to the NHS. In Ireland, anyone attending A&E is charged €100 Euros unless unemployed. Um, then there is a very small charge if admitted uh, to hospital. If in well-paid employment, it's far from perfect, uh, but uh, people don't seem to have any problem with it. Yeah, I didn't realise that was the case in Ireland. On the EU, um, the UK's act of self-harm, um, there is a simple reason why it happened. Uh, uh, the UK was the only country in the European Union to have a mainstream party that in the end came out in favour of leaving. No, you know, we know all about the kind of fringe candidates across Europe who were in favour of leaving. Uh, but only uh, the UK had a mainstream party advocating this in the end. Um, and it was the one that tends to win most general elections here. And that's why Britain is out. Um, thank you, Andrew. Joe Ruffles. Uh, Joe, oh, Joe uh, writes he's coming to the, uh, my show at the Edinburgh Festival twice. Uh, and yeah, the shows will be different, Joe. Uh, there will be different shows each day. So what I'm going to do in Edinburgh, just to reassure Joe, and thank you so much for planning to come twice, is um, there are so many kind of big themes around at the moment. So uh, while, of course, I'll be re reflecting on what's ever happening 
uh, at that given time or day, uh, there will be a specific focus, a different one each day. It could be on Boris Johnson, if you're lucky, Joe, or whatever. Um, so uh, thank you about that. As for uh, his question, uh, Joe's a bit taken aback about something I said last week, uh, which is uh, that I said I didn't blame uh, Vote Leave for their campaigning material during the Brexit referendum. The nonsense they said about 350 million quid a week for the NHS, pretending or lying that uh, Turkey was about to be allowed into the European Union. Um, and I also added, nor did I uh, blame the BBC and others for not calling out these things. Um, and uh, uh Joe argues that it's absolutely the duty of the media to scrutinise to the point where, in effect, they are calling out these things. Um, so this is my reasoning, uh, Joe, that the mistake was Cameron's to call a referendum. But once you call a referendum, uh, it is it, – the joy of politics is touch wood, no one dies – but it is a battle, but it's a political battle rather than a military battle. And in that political battle, people on both sides say what they think they need to say in order to win. And yes, of course, and uh, Joe rightly points out the, uh, some inter political interviews where um, uh, people are scrutinized to the point where they almost come apart or their ideas come apart. And that is fine. But uh, in the end, that is what it is. It's not a seminar, a referendum campaign, where the BBC can say, uh, actually, if you analyse the situation, £350 million a week to pay for the NHS by leaving the European Union is economic illiteracy uh, because they are distorting the amount we put in in the first place, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, now, to some extent, the BBC did do that with their so-called fact check uh, analysis. But I'm afraid campaigns are not about facts. They can be at their best a battle of ideas and really interesting arguments. And you do get that to some extent in referendums. But I'm afraid at the top, you get a lot of nonsense and lies. It's why I'm not a fan of referendums. I think they are awful as a way of deciding anything. But I think the media role is is limited. I mean, we all know what the newspapers do. They pump out whatever they believe and, and Brexit was brought about partly by the newspapers um, in in this country. Uh, but once it's called, it's done. You're in for a battle of uh, vacuous lies. And it's, you know, the BBC didn't call it the, the referendum. And they can stage debates, they can challenge uh, what is uh, being said. Um, but in the end, if you call a referendum, you're going to get it a, a, a battle. Um, and the BBC obviously can't come out on one side and contrary to mythology, emphatically didn't uh, then or since. And incidentally, nor is it to the left, the BBC. Um, as we know, it thinks um, Sunak is the centrist in this contest when he is... Uh, a, a rather rigid 
Thatcherite. Thanks, Joe. See you in Edinburgh. Uh, it would be great. And um, thank you for planning to come up. Uh, Robert Twell writes, I've watched the uh, many Tory leadership debates. Sunak is apologising for moving against Johnson and failing and, and failing to really take on trust. He's not going to win over the Johnson loyalists or the racists, but I think there are still enough Tory members outside those groups to provide a majority. I think he should go full throttle on why he moved against Johnson and criticise Truss for not doing so. Loyalty can be a virtue, but blind loyalty shows a lack of judgment and courage. Uh, I think that's a really good point, Robert. Um, one of the reasons why Sunak is struggling is because a mythology is already uh, asserting itself about the rule of Johnson and party members feeling that uh, Sunak betrayed Johnson by resigning. Sunak did the honourable thing by resigning. The only issue is whether he should have done it earlier. And I noticed Sunak said in his most recent interview on the Today programme that a kind of uh, sugar-coated view of the last weeks of the Johnson era uh, is being put in place, um, uh, whereas in reality ministers were being uh, briefed to go out and lie about what Johnson knew and didn't know. Uh, about old Pincher, uh, which was the final straw for some of these people. Um, and I agree with you that if Sunak wants to win this thing, and it looks as if he is not going to win, um, he absolutely needs to nail the argument uh, about why Johnson went and had to go and why integrity and character matter. And I think he could turn it into a virtue, uh, but he's got to say it louder and be more assertive about it uh, in the coming days if he wants to have a chance. Uh, thank you for that. Jeff Strange, uh, uh, these are uh, – oh, yeah, uh, Jeff, oh, this is a bit of fun, OK? A bit of, uh, we're in August, aren't we? So a bit of fun. Uh, summer reading. He was wondering about uh, summer reading. Maybe the Crossman Diaries, Chips Channon, the Ben Diaries – Anything by Michael Foote. Uh, too many chews, but recommendations for a good six-hour wait at Dover. Oh, and Jeff says, see you in Edinburgh. Yep, see you. Oh, great, Jeff. Uh, see you there. I'm thrilled that you're coming up. Uh, uh, yeah. Oh, well, all those things. Um, to be more precise, the Chips Channon's diaries are a great read, you know, of the 30s and early 40s. And... And that, 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 I mean, he was a gossip. He was very pro-Chamberlain in the late 30s and uh, anti-Churchill. But the, it takes you into that period, those diaries. And you're sort of reading a, about some political intrigue. Then he goes off to an art gallery and sees some man he fancies. Um, and, uh, the, yeah, the, the, it's both decadence and political intrigue. I think I mentioned I'm doing something uh, uh, one of uh, for the new book, one of the chapters is going to be on the 1945 Labour government, and uh, it made me uh, read again Michael Foote's biography on Aniram Bevan. And although it's a bit hagiographic, Foote writes like an angel. He is he's an elegant stylist, um, and I can see why the likes of Beaverbrook, you know, an avid Tory, fell for Michael Foote um, and made him editor of the Evening Standard. Not the kind of thing Evgeny Lebedev would have done. Um, uh, you know, yeah, uh, Michael Foote wrote a great uh, book. Well, it was an anthology of his essays called Debts of Honour, 
That's a great thing to read. Uh, the uh, the Ben Diaries are brilliant. Uh, he was a, a a diarist, an obsessive diarist. He used to, at two in the morning, he used to get back from some political meeting elsewhere and sit there and say, I'm so excited by politics. He used to record it all on tape. There's a wonderful audio diary of the day Harold Wilson resigned and Ben said, uh, I'm so excited. I just love elections. and This leadership election is going to be fascinating. It's not at all clear at this moment who's going to win. And Harold made his resignation speech to the cabinet. And it was very interesting. No one was moved. Harold is not someone who arouses emotions of pity or sadness. And uh, anyway, he, he, he yeah, uh, any of those great, great summer reading while you're stuck in a traffic jam or a queue to get out of this country. Uh, Jeff also asked, Sir John Redwood as Chancellor in a trust government has pantomime season arrived early. Yeah, the speculation about, I mean, I, I'm horrified by the speculation around her government. Have you read Lord Frosty Frost might be her chief of staff? He's back. Uh, you know, get your union jack socks out again. By the way, I gather in Edinburgh there might be another presentation of Union Jack Sox. Uh, yeah, I know, Jeff. Uh, I doubt if Red Bull would be made Chancellor, actually. Uh, but he's endorsed her with great enthusiasm. And, um, oh, my God. Yeah. OK, thank you uh, very much. Uh, Dominic Lee wonders, I know that the Rock and Roll Cock cooperative are tired of political cliches but which ones really rile you which would you banish to the dustbin of history pun intended from tories endlessly promising grammar schools would you push the button we're the ones with a plan or leaders taking on their parties a bugbear of yours and all the rest welcome for some of your own to be added good luck to edinburgh we'll be back at your king's play show in the autumn but i'm off to america around texas and louisiana louisiana for some summer holidays my phone loaded with rock and roll politics podcast to see me through the flights and the drives oh wow dominic's great to think you might be on one of those roads in Texas as you're listening to this and your own uh, thoughts. I can't think of any more, but you've given enough. Um, I quite like, by the way, some cliches are quite useful. I like the one, we've got a plan. And go back to Keir Starmer. I think when inflation was, and it still is, raging, he needs to do what Osborne did in opposition and say, we have got a plan. Um, now, he had his one, one-off windfall tax, um, and actually, they have got a g- good plan uh, for home insulation as part of I mean, a really vivid example of how you tackle the root cause of inflation by trying to reduce demand by insulating our hopelessly uninsulated homes. Um, and it's 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 uh, part of a green drive too. Um, but it's got to be big. You've got to hold a press conference and say, this is our plan to deal with it. Him and Rachel Reeves standing there. And it's got to be more than a one-off policy on windfall tax. But no doubt some focus group has said, uh, you know, anything else. And they think it's going to be Labour hidden tax bombshells. And so he hasn't done that yet. But he needs to. I'm a fan of I'm a plan. You're right. I don't like, oh, yeah, we're going we're gonna to slaughter the left because it's just strategically inept. Just creates an impression of division. Um, okay, uh, on to uh, uh, Paul 
Cooper, who says, should Truss win in early September, can Sunak not say he tried his best, but now I'm done, resign and take a job in Silicon Valley and join Nick Clegg? And then first thing on the new prime minister's agenda, a by-election enrichment. Uh, I think Paul is very likely if Rishi Sunak loses, he'll leave politics. But I suspect he'll stay till the end of this parliament. But I wonder if he'll carry on after that. Losing a leadership contest, which you begin thinking you've got one hell of a good chance of winning, is deeply demoralizing, um, especially as as Jeremy Hunt has concluded, you only get one go at this kind of thing. Um, and, and, and if you've blown it, that can be it. Uh, now, I know some of you will say, what about Boris Johnson? He stood twice. Well, he didn't really. He pulled out of the one in 2016 uh, before the votes had been cast. Um, OK, let's go on to... Uh, uh, yeah, oh, Venetia Kane wonders whether Keir Starmer is rather like Theresa May. Privately, good sense of humour, but publicly it's, he finds it hard to show it. Uh, and, and, and there are other comparisons. In some ways there are, but again, you know, he 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 is very different from her. I say that there is a sort of private exuberance. He loves football, he loves music, uh, and some of that needs to sort of come out. Um, but you're right, he can be uh, funny and relaxed and uh, and that in a way is part of being authoritative. So, but I think the public persona, there are some parallels actually. But remember, the, until the end with Theresa May, they are both winners in a kind of linear way. You know, so um, uh, Keir is, is quite a linear po- politician. He wants to win. And he will do anything that he thinks is necessary to win. Uh, and you've seen that with the way he's he's dealt with internal issues and and other matters. Uh, look, I mean, look, at you know, as a white uh, middle class person in his 50s, he got one of the safest seats for Labour. Uh, he then got into the shadow cabinet very quickly. Um, he then became Labour leader. Um, but he did it via those 10 pledges, which he's reneged on. And that becomes problematic. And, and Theresa May was similarly sort of linear in her focus, you know, so she voted Remain, but she was absolutely determined not to campaign on it. Do you remember Cameron saying she was submarine May, but she was because she wanted to win, 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 win the leadership uh, when the time came. So there are some parallels, but uh, there are some quite big differences as well. Uh, Martin Jones, uh, regular listener to the podcast, normally in Birmingham, but currently in holiday in Hawaii. That's cool. Uh, I hope you're surfing the waves in Hawaii with your headphones firmly in with uh, the Rock and Roll Politics podcast. Uh, Since the Brexit referendum, politicians seem to be in permanent campaigning mode. Over the past six years, we've had two general elections, three Tory leadership elections, and two, or is it three, with Labour, not to mention elections in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. Johnson is an exceptional campaigner, though a desperately poor PM. As you've often said, governing is hard. By contrast, in Wales, Mark Drakeford is an unimpressive performer with even less pizzazz than Keir Starmer, but seems far better suited to governing in taking unpopular but necessary decisions. Regarding Starmer, do you believe he falls into this category and should be should he be elected, would, like Clem Attlee, prove an effective PM. It's an interesting point, Martin, about this eternal campaigning. 
I mean, Boris Johnson was only at ease campaigning, as we've all discussed many times before. Um, but uh, you're right, because of all these contests and prime ministers falling, you then have major leadership contests. So I forget that Liz Truss is currently still foreign secretary, but she's in a permanent campaign at the moment. Uh, and, and when she wins, if she wins, uh, she will be looking towards the general election and be in a sort of campaigning mode. Um, and you're right, Mark Drakeford, is a, he's not bothered by the performance of politics, but the hard grind of governing, he's proved to be very popular and successful at. Uh, Keir Starmer could be Clem Attlee-like, but he's got to grasp the fact uh, that uh, you need to create the space as a governing party to be able to pull levers to do things. And if you roll out too much in advance to be kind of new Labour like in 1997, uh, you won't have those levers to pull. Uh, planning is a perfectly legitimate thing for a government to be involved with. That was the, that was the basic theme of the Attlee government, to plan uh, for the British economy and uh, the, the, the welfare state and, the, and everything else, the health system. Um, now, we're not in 45, I hasten to add. It was the big mistake Michael Foote made, you know, the 83 election campaign. I think I've told you. I went to a couple of his speeches. He was still a great, compelling speaker. But in 1945, we showed that we can rebuild a country broken by war. And we're going to do it again. And Iron Bevan said, um, you know, you can't do that. <laughs> it's a long time ago. But some of the ideas, I've, as I've just been writing about that 45 government, some of the kind of ideas behind uh, the virtues of planning and the accountability of doing so uh, are, I think, quite uh, potent. Hello, I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? With me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez. Out now, wherever you get your podcasts. Dominica Jewell, whilst on a city shuttle bus in Salzburg, you get around Dominica. Uh, the TV uh, screens switch from the usual adverts to a news report with extensive video footage of the latest scandal involving Prince Charles and his acceptance of a large donation from the Bin Laden family. It seems that eyebrows are being raised beyond the UK. Now, it's interesting. I haven't Follow that one much even in the UK, Dominique. I know it's splashed on the Sunday Times here. Uh, meanwhile, on French TV screens, I've yet to see any mention of the current UK media focus with the contest to become the next PM. Well, fair enough in France, but again, fair enough in Britain, uh, Dominique. Uh, for, you know, I, I agree with you about some of the media stuff in Britain, but... I mean, it's huge. This, you know, only about three people are voting in it. But um, who wins this thing will certainly shape the next two years in the UK. Um, 
But the media in France, de l'honneur, much coverage of the holiday booking figures, almost back to 2019 levels. And perhaps this is an indication of where current priorities lie with the French public. Fair enough. I just wish we could all get out and join you, uh, Dominica, and the French public on their holidays. You just have to queue up six hours to get out of Dover to do it. Um, but, uh, oh, and Dominique says, bravo with your French pronunciation last week. Thank you. Um, that is the most thrilling thing I've heard, you know, because I had to read a bit of French last week. Um, and uh, I was very uh, uneasy about doing so. Um, finally from Scott Croswell enjoying the podcast as ever thank you Scott and thank you I know you sent me um, some uh, uh, an email with some uh, uh, a material that you've written and I have looked at it and I will get in contact with you very soon Um, anyway Scott says uh, you may have noticed that it was recently the anniversary of Labour's 45 election victory. I, had, I hadn't clocked that, Scott. However, I noticed some commentators, for instance, talk TV host Mike Graham, say that Labour had nothing to do with fighting for victory during the Second World War. The ignorance of history is a problem. And from your perspective, do you think most journalists and politicians, for that matter, ignore history or decide that going back uh, before 97 or 2010 isn't important? Well, I wouldn't worry too too much, Scott, about Mike Graham and his, uh, you know, sense of uh, history. Um, but it is a general problem that uh, context is deeply out of fashion these days, except, ladies and gentlemen, on this podcast. Uh, and there are the references beyond 1997 don't happen very often. Indeed, uh, from that period, you know, too, much, too many things are reported or analysed as if they've erupted from a vacuum from nowhere. And yeah, there are references back to 1997. Too many, in my view. Uh, and Keir Starmer, the, his speech in Liverpool, there was some good stuff in it, actually. Uh, but he said, economic growth, economic growth, economic growth, like education, education, education. Um, no leader wins copying uh, a predecessor. They are all distinct and original. Um, so, yeah, it's very important to explain by contextualizing. Um, it was one of the great things uh, John Burt used to try and do at the BBC, put things in context, mission to explain. Uh, I, I'm up for all of that kind of stuff. Uh, sadly, it's gone out of fashion at the BBC now. They're kind of very uh, down market, you know, oh, let's do a Vox Pop in Stoke and that will show that we're out there with the people, etc. But um, context and making sense of it. Well, that's what we all do here, isn't it? And we've all been doing it for quite some time today. So I think we better stop at that point. But say, please do book for the Edinburgh Festival if you can or sign on to Patreon where you get these bonus podcasts. If you could leave a review on that iPhone kind of podcast thing, that's great. Uh, only if you like it, of course. And, um, yeah, thanks for brilliant questions. I'm really sorry if I didn't read them out. Uh, but keep them coming in as we try and make sense of it all. So have a great week, running, walking, baking, knitting, whatever you're doing. And uh, see you all again when we try and make sense of it all next week. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye.